This is the new Criterion. I'm James Pinero, Executive Editor. There is much to celebrate in the month of December. We might say this is especially true as we mark the conclusion of 2020. At the new Criterion, our 2020 art issue is a particular cause for cheer. Our special selection of features, now in its 20th year, brings our art writers together under a single cover. This year, the selection includes contributions by my editorial colleagues Ben Riley and Andy Shea, who join us now. Welcome. Thanks, James. Thanks, James. Albert Pinkham Ryder, Isolato of the Brush. Andy, this is the title of your essay. Not only on a new book about the reclusive turn-of-the-century American painter, but also about artistic solitude. First off, who was Albert Pinkham Ryder? Well, he was a painter. Um, he was born in 1847 in New Bedford, Massachusetts. He was He's commonly known as one of the last romantic American painters, but also sort of a proto-modernist. By the time he died, uh, which was in 1917, he was sort of the subject of... Um, an intense veneration by the, the early American modernists, such as, say, Marston Hartley, Milton Avery, and Arthur Dove. Um, and they, they looked up to him as sort of a, um, not only in his biography, he kind of exuded this um, romantic image of the isolated painter, which they, I think, appreciated as sort of members of the avant-garde, um, but also his, pain, his paintings actually were sort of proto-modernist in the way that he, you know, used abstraction and painted from sort of more of a, um, an inner vision as opposed to um, the sort of more spectacular um, expansionist um, paintings of sort of the Hudson River School. Yeah, and if, I'm, if I were to describe these paintings, I see them. They're often quite small, often quite dark, nautical scenes, um kind of encrusted sometimes with a lot of uh, varnish. Is this how he meant them to be? Was he doing something different in painting these than what other painters were doing at the time? Yeah, mo most of the paintings are uh, very small, um, usually no bigger than, say, 20 or 25 inches. Um, some of them are even as small as, you know, seven or eight inches. And so, um, and in, in terms of his material, he was... Uh, he sort of maniacally experimented with different kinds of material. And so he varnished his paintings over and over and over again over the course of years and even, um, you know, a decade, I think, at its, at its longest. Uh, he would introduce different kinds of varnish. Uh, he would mix different kinds of medium that would dry at different, you know, rates. He put dirt in the paintings. He put um, grease, candle wax, uh, I think he, there's even a suggestion that he might have used tobacco juice. So he was sort of looking for ways to um, expand what a, a painting can be materially. Um, unfortunately, that's resulted in a lot of the paintings to degrade. Um, and so a lot of the paintings now, you can almost really, they, they, they look like sort of these, you know, encrustations of molten lava. And you really lose basically everything that probably what they look like initially well he was uh he experimented in the studio um and he spoke about the importance of the reclusive studio here's what he said in 1905 the artist quote must live to paint and not paint to live 
He cannot be a good fellow. He is rarely a wealthy man, and upon the pot boiler is inscribed the epitaph of his art. In your essay, Andy, you argue that today's, quote, over-socialization of art presents a chronic risk. Why is that, and whatever happened to the writer ideal? Well, so there, I think since um, part, the, the book that uh, I used as the occasion to write this essay, um, uh, it's called A Wild Note of Longing, Albert Pinkham Ryder and a Century of American Art. Um, it's, it's not, Ryder has had a following essentially since, uh, you know, his, late in his life. So there have been people who have always um, strongly supported and idolized him. Um, at the same time, I think his work sort of goes against um, art that is more academic. Um, and I think today there's especially um, a great risk of the academization of art um, in the way that the art world itself has um, aligned itself with the academy. And so there's sort of risks involved with that. Um, that have to do with um, artists following trends, following what other artists are doing, and in, in my piece, I, I make the point that this is there. There's you know, there's a civilizational aspect to this where you know any art, it's it's very rare for art to actually be isolated in the way that um, some people say writers' art is. But at the same time, there's a risk of having art become overly academic overly conversational with what other people are doing and essentially you lose the sort of the inner vision which i think people sort of look to him as sort of an example of would you say that there's a new salon style now no i i don't think so but i think it's um there's no there's no salon style but there's a salon attitude maybe Mm -hmm. um in the way that um there's sort of expected ways that you approach a approach art um so it's a it's a very different situation than in the in the late nineteenth century when there was sort of an expected way to make a painting. That's mm-hmm. it's sort of the opposite now. Like in terms of like the multicultural pluralism, um, everyone's sort of expected to do wildly different things. But at the same time, there are sort of ideas that um, maybe at least in some circles are frowned upon, which the the sort of veneration of the individual I think is um, one thing that's treated with heavy skepticism in the academy. Mm-hmm. And in part for, for, for good reason, but um, when, you, when you lose all sense of the individual in art, I think you, you tend to lose something sort of essential about what art is. Well, I know for our audience that you are an accomplished painter yourself. When you're not here with us, you are working in your studio. How can our listeners see your work? Um, well, I have a website. It's uh, andrewlshay.com. So it's my first and last name and middle initial. It's also uh, linked on my author page at the New Criterion, so that's a good way to see. And how does your painting influence your art criticism? Well, I think I try to write as much as possible from the perspective of a painter. Um, that's sort of, I guess, maybe the privileged information that I have, you know, the privileged experience that I have not coming from necessarily um, an art historical background. Um, so being able to discuss you know, what goes into making a painting, the kinds of things you're thinking about as a painter... Um, it can can be useful for um, for clarifying what you're seeing at the galleries or at the museum um, for people who've never you know been in, inside a studio. And of course, there's you know strong precedent for artists being critics. Um, at least you know some of our writers have been our, our painters. Um, Fairfield Porter, 
John Ruskin. Uh, they're, I mean, it's they're they're almost too many. Sorry, and Mar- Mario Navas, who Mario visited Nav- your studio this morning. Right, exactly. Um, and it goes all the way back to Vasari, actually. Not that I can, you know, would dare to put myself on that. But you know, the original art historian was a painter himself, and there was something to the fact that he knew what he was, you know, talking about. A very good painter. Vasari often gets overlooked because he's more now known as a famous uh, art writer, That's but right, he was yeah. a very good, uh, a very good painter as well. Ben, your contribution to the December issue is an interview with Clive Aslett and Dylan Thomas on British Country Homes and their new book, Old Homes, New Life. Part of this book is an appreciation of these historic residences, and another part is an appreciation of the families that reside in and still preserve them. Do old homes mean something different in England than in America? Yeah, I think they do. Um <clears throat> mostly because of the principle of primogeniture, whereby these houses are able to stay in families in England. Um, We don't have that tradition here of passing um, the family home to the firstborn son. Um, And as a result, homes in America are generally um, a one-generation phenomenon, although um, it's not universally true. Um, But if you think about the great homes of America, places like Newport, they go out of the family really, really quickly. And in continental Europe, it's even worse, right? Because at least you have the choice to do that here. But in in Europe, you can't even leave it to one heir. That's right. Because of the the afterlife of the Napoleonic Code, all over continental Europe, assets must be be split equally between children, um, which results in houses passing out of families very, very quickly. you know, one one generation is the most you can hope for in a lot of cases. Well, another issue is also attitude to old things. I very much worry today that old is out, especially in homes. Every home show now starts with a guy with a sledgehammer creating some open concept plan out of some classic home layout. Brown furniture also seems destined for the wood pile, as younger generations want seem to want what is contemporary and disposable. Uh, do you see a counter trend in England? And through this book? I'm not sure I'd call it a counter trend. There are always people who are interested in the past. Um, I don't know how many of them are out there um, enough to make a book like Old Homes, New Life quite successful, but perhaps not enough to reverse the trends of contemporary architecture. You studied in England British architecture, and what is it about home design in England that makes it so special? Well, um, England has a sort of patchy history when it comes to classical architecture, actually. Um, The real arrival of classicism in England is with Inigo Jones um, in the uh, 17th century. And um, before that, it was was patchily applied. the, the English have a great attachment to their homes, and it's reflected in the, uh, the spectacular tradition of architects, um, Jones, Wren, Hawksmoor, um, Gibbs. And uh, so I think there, there's a sense there, and it, it is a traditional place, um, there's, there's a sense there that these old things are worth hanging on to. Um, they have provenance. Uh, you know, when uh, you think about the fact that you can visit Hampton Court, where Henry VIII lived. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's an amazing bit of posterity. Well, speaking of trends and counter-trends, the museum world has had a rough 2020. Beyond the shutdowns of the pandemic and beset by 
protest, there has never been a period of lower confidence, I would say, in American museums than now. This is a topic I address in my own feature this month called Unmaking the Met, about the past, present, and future of the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Listeners can tune in to my own podcast on the topic and read the article at newcriterion.com. So do either of you see any countertrends in the museum world, any affirmations of that traditional museum role as stewards of history and custodians of art in the public trust? Well, I've been uh, impressed by what the Frick has done um, with their video series, um, their Cocktails with the Curator, which started in March when uh, our masters all sent us inside and uh, has continued now. Even as the Frick itself remains closed in preparation of their major renovation, um, so I, I'm I'm heartened by what Xavier Solomon's done, and uh, I'm excited to see the Frick in the Breyer Building on Madison Avenue. That's great. No, I and those podcasts are really wonderful. What are you guys looking forward to on the cultural horizon in 2021? It's tough because there 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 are a few museum exhibitions that are at least slated to start this spring. Um, I think at the Barnes, there's supposed to be one on Soutine and de Kooning, um, which I'm excited to see. Um, a lot of museums are sort of holding their plans close to the chest because just given the contingent nature of um, how things might go in the next couple months, um, at least I'm personally looking forward to this uh, writer book that I wrote about. Um, it was originally planned to coincide with an exhibition this past summer um, with, you know, a significant number of his paintings that's scheduled at the moment for this coming summer so hopefully that'll happen um, and I actually just learned that it's going to include a number of contemporary artists who um, have looked to Ryder as as an influence so that that I'm very excited to see um, but in terms of what else is out there it's tough to say because we just don't know how how much museums are willing to commit to um, you know significant loan exhibitions given that we don't know if they'll be able to show them that's right I actually haven't seen the uh, reopened European galleries, European painting galleries at the Met, and uh, I'm looking forward to getting over there, hopefully before they close the museum again. Well, I, I saw them uh, this past weekend, and they, they do look really nice. So if you are in New York, it's worth definitely going there as quick as you can. I mean, we'll see we'll see how long it's open if it closes down again. I really hope it doesn't, um, but they, they do look really nice with the new, the new skylights and... Um, there, there's less space because they're still working on half of the galleries, but uh, all our old friends are there. So it's nice to be able to, to see some of that stuff for the first time in eight months. can be salutary to see old friends hanging in new places. Exactly. Yeah, I know. And I found, um, you know, with the, uh, with the time tickets and the fewer tourists in town, actually, it's a very good time to be at museums right now. I've spent a lot of time at MoMA, MoMA the yeah. galleries. MoMA especially, I would say, because MoMA is usually totally overrun, um, obviously in a good way, uh, in that they typically, you know, in before times, as they say, uh, it was, you know, well attended, but it's a smaller space. And so now they've, you know, they've just done their expansion and now they're really spacing things out. So you can actually go up and look at some paintings without, um, you know, having people brush by you and take pictures and all those so in a, in a you know selfish way, it's actually quite a good time to see uh, see some see museums if they're open. That's right. Um, I hope I get to travel even there's um, I just got a notice about an exhibition at the Louis Vuitton Foundation in Paris of the collection of the Morozov family, kind of picking up on the Shukin collection they showed uh, a few years ago, which I thought was so spectacular and I wrote about it. 
It's also worth saying that the galleries have done a great job of kind of picking up some of the slack. Uh, they opened up before a lot of the museums. And uh, so just the fact that they, you know, are, are willing to at least be open on an appointment basis. Um, it's a it's a extreme you know privilege to have in New York, at least. Yeah, I write about this in the next Gallery Chronicle. I, I totally agree. And I don't think everyone quite realizes all they've done. Uh, for the bigger galleries, you do require a time ticket, but you can just go show up and, and pick it up on the spot. It's free. And it's an amazing resource, and the galleries are, are still quite empty. I would finally add for uh, something to look forward to is our 40th anniversary season, which starts in September 2021. We'll have a double issue, a year-long series, and a slate of books and events. We certainly hope so. You've been listening to The New Criterion. My guests today have been my colleagues Ben Riley and Andy Shea. I'm James Panero. To our listeners, thank you for joining us here at the end of 2020 and for your support of our efforts through this extraordinary year. Felicitations of the season.